my approach is really about trying to bring bring the fun back to clubs a little bit. I think a lot of volunteers that are heavily involved are really overburdened. So how can we make their efforts and the people we want to bring into our club environment, their efforts, really worthwhile and engaging and keep them involved? So I suppose the exciting, dynamic, fun part is is really about if, if you're going to do something that's your your passion and, and is only a tiny bit of your life, we might as well make it bloody fun. Welcome to Swim.Rocks, the show that shares ideas, information and inspiration between swimming people who stay dry. I'm your host, Ben Ramsden, and this week we're talking to Ian Sandbrook, who's the owner of Sports for Good Consulting. Now, Ian has a background in cricket and soccer, but I think you'll find his expertise is highly relevant also to swimming, particularly in relation to recruiting and motivating volunteers and building links with your local community. Early on today, I caught up with Ian via Skype and started off by asking him how it was that he managed to get experience in both Scotland and New Zealand. When I started off... um in sports development, um, I, I, I suppose I played a little bit of sport to a to a reasonably elite level, so <clears throat> cricket and football mainly, so soccer here. Um, and then when I finished my playing career, um, I suppose my my background in terms of university was a, a sport management degree and, and a business degree, and, and I was always interested in that that area of work. Um, and I worked in New Zealand for what would be um, what we call a district association within cricket and then the equivalent, I suppose, of like a state set up in Australia, um, so central districts and stuff as well over here, um, which is really interesting and I sort of had a pretty broad spectrum of experiences in there. So, you know, coming in, you know, right from, you know, the, the boots on the ground a little bit, the, the development officer out there really helping clubs and coaching and getting out there with kids. So. That was a, I suppose my first passion was just right at the coal face of it. Um, but then I slowly um, evolved into, I suppose, some more senior roles as you do, um, but operations, et cetera, et cetera. And then I suppose about six or seven years ago, six years ago, um, I made the move over to the UK um, as much as a little bit of a, yeah, some, some new experiences. Me and my wife moved over. Um, an opportunity came up with Cricket Scotland, um, which was really interesting um, for me working in an environment that where cricket, one of my main sports, um, obviously isn't high profile. So I suppose what I learned over there was um, was really valuable, you know, about, you know, just really working hard to get the most out of anything that you got um, and working hard in an environment um, to get people really engaged and, and loving a sport, um, which didn't come naturally to them. So... You know, and I, and I worked as a regional manager there and then headed up um, the national program for Cricket Scotland for the last sort of four to five years um, over there before moving back to, to New Zealand um, earlier this year. Now, obviously, uh, New Zealand and Scotland are uh, almost on opposite ends of the planet, but, you know, share certain common sports. What things were really similar and what things are really different between uh, between those two nations? Yeah, I think in, in terms of the simil- similarities, you know, pretty similar population um, sort of size, um, some concentration of population in, in sort of one or two areas. So in Scotland, really in that central belt area, with Glasgow and Edinburgh, that only 
45, 50 minutes apart. Um, so, you know, a huge swell of population there. And I suppose looking at New Zealand, a huge swell of population around Auckland in the north. Um, so some, some similarities there and, and some of the challenges um, as well around, um, you know, where the conditions aren't too dissimilar um, for outdoor sports. Um, a, little, a little bit colder, I would say, but, um, but you know, not, not too dissimilar in that regard. And, and I suppose in terms of the, I suppose the societal um, structure, you know, pretty, pretty similar. You know, I think Kiwis are a bit more laid back, but, you know, some of the, the challenges we face around local authorities and councils and the squeeze being put on those, which I think are being felt right across the board in New Zealand, Australia, et cetera, as well. So, so there's a lot of those similarities. But, and, you know, the opposite side of that, the, the things that were really different was, was I suppose, attitudes as, as much as anything and mindsets and approaches um, a little bit to, to sport and the way people got involved. I think it came from an environment where um, sport was kind of just what you did. You know, we, we kind of grew up in, you know, a lot of, a lot of ways, fairly rural communities. Everyone kind of pitched in. You gave everything a go. Um, and I think there's always that attitude, particularly in Australasia, a little bit of, um, you know, just everyone kind of mucks in and she'll be right as well, um, which has a lot of strengths but some weaknesses as well. Um, well, what I found in Scotland was, you know, we had some real challenges around, um, you know, real large levels of inactivity in certain parts of the population, um, challenges of, around access to facilities, um, and probably uh, an entrenched mindset around some sports as well. You know, football's a huge sport there. Um, and, and look, they've done, they've come a huge, hugely long way around broadening people's experiences into sport and, and doing some fantastic stuff as well. But, you know, coming in fairly fresh-faced, you know, trying to get your head around some of those different challenges um, and working in a sport where you're no longer high profile as well. You know, cricket really was seen as English and snobby and all of that sort of stuff. So in the particular area I was working in, you just you had to fight for everything that you got in terms of people getting involved, playing your sport, volunteering that you talk about. Um, so all of those areas um, were probably you just had to work a little bit harder in some regards. That's fascinating. So we could talk about that for a very long time, but today you're a you're the owner of Sport for Good Consulting. Um, tell us what is Sport for Good and what's what do you do? So Sport for Good Consulting came about really for me uh, over the last couple of years. I've been thinking about it, um, and it's sort of been part of my journey, my professional journey, really. Um, and in the last three or four years at Cricket Scotland, it probably condensed in my mind around what I was really passionate about. Um, you know, I mentioned I played at a, a reasonable high level. Um, I got involved in terms of operations and and fairly heavily involved in the, in the organisations. But I, I really wanted to help people out at the grassroots level. And, and I suppose that stems from um, me probably wanting people to have the great experiences I had in sport. Um and we had a, I suppose, when we moved moved back to New Zealand, which was around some family circumstances, um, which brought us back a bit earlier. Um, it gave me an opportunity to kind of reassess and go, well, what do I really want to do here? And and I could jump back into the sausage machine, and I could have, you know, tried to get a, a role with a NSO or or something like that, which um, absolutely could have had a crack at. But I thought that the timing was right for myself to to have a go at really honing in on an area within sport where I think there's, there is a need and there's a, there's a real challenge around, um, I suppose, the decline in, in traditional club sport and what I saw. 
um, not all sports. Obviously, there's some sports that are, um, you know, that are growing and are going from strength to strength. But probably my experience in the sports that I was I was mainly involved in, clubs were struggling, um, and I thought that we were perhaps pushing a model that um, was dying and wasn't actually fit for purpose anymore. So, so that's sort of where Sport for Good Consulting came back, uh, came around. It was it's a little bit of play on the words in, in terms of sport for good. We all understand the, the good that sport does for us, socially, health-wise, but also the models and the, the things that I'm doing is around what will be good for sport in the long run. And it's about switching it around and perhaps being a little bit more community-focused, a little bit more about social cohesion and connection again, which I believe we've lost a little bit of in, in our modern-day muddle. Um, so it's probably helping clubs, um, but also regional bodies, national governing bodies as well for sport to, to understand that perhaps those priorities need to come back a little bit and lots of lots of clubs and people involved perhaps don't understand how to go about it. They've got lots of goodwill and are doing their thing day to day but perhaps a little bit of, bit of uh, re-energisation, motivation, a little bit of direction around how they can become a little bit more community focused as a long-term strategy to, to the good of, for the good of their sport and their club. There's so much in what you said there, and um, you've put some really interesting uh, written material out on LinkedIn. In fact, that's that's how I came across uh, I came across your work a, a couple of weeks back, uh, Ian. There's one particular phrase that stood out to me: um, how clubs can be exciting, dynamic, fun, and successful. <laughs> sounds sounds fantastic. Can can you make that real for us? Can you give us some some examples about about what that means? Yeah, I suppose for me it was um, it also came about that statement from my experience again working heavily within sports development is I think we got a little bit obsessed around um, structure, um, process, a lot of club development tools that we used and, and a lot of sports used around very much club auditing in a lot of ways was seen as the way of um, raising the bar or the standards of clubs and a lot of the stuff within those absolutely totally agree with um, and very well intentioned, but I think the the harsh reality of it, in my experience, was was many volunteer run clubs um, weren't interested in that. It was it was an admin burden. Um, in fact, I'll be a bit blunt here. Some clubs just lied. You know, they just tick the boxes and fill it in, and um, that's done and out the way. And we kind of carry on doing the same thing that we've done. So, you know, my approach is really about trying to bring bring the fun back to clubs a little bit. I think a lot of volunteers that are heavily involved are really overburdened. So how can we make their efforts and the people we want to bring into our club environment, their efforts, really worthwhile and engaging and keep them involved? So I suppose the exciting, dynamic, fun part is is really about if, if you're going to do something that's your your passion and, and is only a tiny bit of your life, we might as well make it bloody fun you know, and engaging and, and, and good stuff. And, and I'll link a little bit, I'm sure, when we talk about some of the volunteering around how we engage people. I don't, and I'll be blunt a bit here again, I don't want to go sit um, on a club committee and give up my life. But I've got some skills that I can help out at the clubs that I'm interested in and do my bit for the club and make a real difference. So it's it's kind of that kind of model. And I, and I suppose when I talk about that, those those words and those phrases, it's about, really being people-centred to make that happen. Um, and, and I mentioned it before around creating social connection. So I believe we all want to be part of something. And I think sometimes our clubs have got so hung up on our sport 
and being the best at that sport and winning the championship or the banner or the best times, they were forgotten that people join a club primarily to be with other people. And all those things come into it, you know, around being the best that you can be and performance, et cetera, as well. But if you lose that soul of what you're doing, I think it will eventually fall apart. So that's where I start to talk about people-centered. Um, and, and look, I would say when I, when I talk to clubs, a little bit of, I suppose, the model that I work on is around um, the five C. So I talk about culture, community, your customers, the communication, and, and the last one around connectors, which I wrote a little bit on on LinkedIn. Um, and really, if I was talking to clubs about what you might like to concentrate on, first and foremost, so I always say culture. You know, culture, I put in there, eat strategy for breakfast, and it's a little bit of a cliche, but how do you make people feel? And that's where those buzzwords that you mentioned around exciting and dynamic and fun, that's what you remember. Um, you know, you can, people remember what you might tell them or something, but you always, you always remember how someone made you feel. And if your club's able to create a feeling for people, you've got a much, much better chance of building something sustainable and successful in the longer term. So that's an area that I kind of really focus in on. And, and it's a little bit, it's a little bit the softer skills as well, which I think brings to life that, that dynam, dynamism, however you say it, um, the excitement, the fun. Um, it's not necessarily all the structure stuff, which is still important and has its place, but I'm about motivating people and getting them excited about their club and their sport and what they're doing and how to grow that. Um, so there, there are probably some some key bits that, that come out of that. Um, can, can, I mean, can, we, can we just um, dig into that a bit more? Our listener uh, probably has got a, a swimmer or two in their family and they're, you know, doing something around the swimming club. And, you know, a lot of people around clubs, I think I've heard this phrase used, they're either thermometers or the thermostats. You know, the thermometers, of, you know, most people can actually tell you whether there's a good feeling or a bad feeling. They'll tell you whether they like the culture or not. But there's relatively few that are the thermostats that can turn up the temperature or turn it down. In fact, unfortunately, there tend to be more people that turn down the temperature than turn it up. But if, if, you, if, you, if you did want to give people some practical advice about how to you know, make things more fun and energizing and some of those wonderful words you were using, Ian, what, have you just got a sort of quick, quick example of, a, of something that could do to, uh, to help that? Um, I could probably... Um mention maybe a couple of things. I, I did mention the connectors before, and I, and I think I'm a big believer in this around try and open up your boundaries and, and your group within your club to new people. Find those people who who make things happen, and, and I know that sounds simplistic, but so many of our clubs um, are run by a couple of people, really. So how can you open up your, your heart a little bit um, to be able to find those people who can make things happen. And the connector might not necessarily be the best swimming coach, as an example, um, or the best administrator. It might be the great mum who's just awesome at getting all the other parents on board and really supportive and support all the events. Um, you know, it could be someone who's not got any swimming background at all but can help run a fundraiser for you, those sort of ideas. So I think when you start finding people and talking to people, and making connections and finding out your skill sets, that starts to create that culture and things start to happen. And it's a little bit organic, and I believe it needs to be a bit organic. I, I don't believe there's a, a checklist of things that you just do and then automatically you'll be all right, because if there was, we wouldn't be having this conversation probably. 
So going out and talking to people and finding those connectors because what will happen is it will snow, snowball from there if you can get some people on board. And probably another concept that I'll mention and, and I start to um, use a little bit in my work is concept around immunity to change. Um, and this is a Harvard Business School thinking and, and some of you no doubt will be aware of it. Um, and it's something that I've used personally and came across a few years ago. It's part of a leadership concept and, and I found it transformational for me personally. But I think it can be replicated to an extent and, and in the right con context, in the, in, the, in the club context, around for, for most clubs is actually what is it that, that one thing, that belief that you actually have that is that is probably holding you back or those behaviours within your club. And a, look, a, a really simple example might be, you know, you never have a female swimmers or you didn't have a female team at your club and, you know, all the old white guys middle-aged guys probably say we'll never get females to play cricket or football or whatever but they never it's a, it's a protectionism really around what they want their sport to be so a club sitting down and really finding out well, what is that one perhaps behavior or cultural part of our club that if we just knock that barrier down would really let us loose so i think having those conversations within your club to find out what that is and that's like tackling the biggest demon for your club and I think if you can knock the biggest one out of the park and start to break down some of those barriers, then again, people see change starting to happen. And as people are really heavily invested in your club, you get a confidence and great um, amount of motivation from that and, and allows you to keep evolving and, and being the club. So they're kind of two of the biggest things that I, I kind of would, would suggest to clubs around, around that culture and trying to um, yeah, get things to start to happen. Ian, the points you raise are absolutely fundamental and a lot of meetings I go to at clubs are dealing with very tactical issues like how many sausages are we going to buy for the barbecue this week and who's going to, who's going to get the ketchup sorted out and you know, yada, yada, yada. How do you create the space or the opportunity to actually have these, these quite big conversations? Yeah, I think... Um some of those little conversations are really important and then we can't gloss over that for clubs, but I'm probably quite um, an advocate of, and it links in a little bit with our bite-sized volunteering, is, is moving away from our, just our standard stock standard club committee. You know, I, I think that's probably, um, it serves a purpose and I'd use it more to meet the legal requirements of your club. I'm a big fan of, again, breaking that down and, and it's nothing new, you know, going back to a bit more club committee or, or working group style, um, which I think, again, appeals more to people where if I've got some real skill sets around, um, for example, you know, like how can we just encourage greater participation at our club? Just as an example, um, I would love to give up my time to start some of the blue sky thinking um, around that for my club within that working group environment with like-minded people um, that want to see this area of the club develop and improve. I think that's far more beneficial than sitting around a club committee table where, look, let's be honest, you know, if you started talking about some of those big issues, probably half of them will probably switch off already and it's not really their bag and that's fine. You know, it doesn't have to be their bag, but if you're able to, to split it up a little bit more into those working groups, give them a bit of ownership and real... Um, power to, to go ahead and start to make things happen, I think then we start more of those big conversations starting to happen within the club. And quite often, a smaller working group 
will get a little bit more bottom-up input than the committee talking about it. And you often get the same answers coming from just the, the top committee. So I think breaking it down a little bit more will, will help that. You mentioned there bite-sized volunteering. Talk to us more about that because I read some of your um, some of your material and um, I think if I remember right, you were very um, diplomatic about the wonderful contribution the long timers uh, play within the club. But you were you were noting the opportunity really is to get everybody to do a little bit more rather than a few people just doing even more than they do already. Yeah, yeah. But bite-sized volunteering, um, it's obviously struck a chord a little bit. And <clears throat> we came up with that term in my time at Cricket Scotland when we were sitting there um, and I I got a, a mentor on board or a, a guy I work with, Spin Alksha, uh, who was Sports Marketing Network, um, was a company that we actually contracted to help us. When I sat down and looked at our club development model, I wasn't happy with what we were doing. So got him in to help and we were sitting there talking about volunteering and some of these concepts and saying we need to get away from from your lifetime volunteer and that sounds terrible but it's not meant to sound terrible those people were still absolutely fantastic and needed but it wasn't setting the right behaviors it was was really showing or, or a lot of clubs are just relying on those one or two people so we needed more more bite size and, and we came up with that and we just it was one of those moments we sort of went yeah that sounds pretty cool um and, and I think bite-sized volunteering really um, just comes down to cracking that common theme around the, um, the challenges around volunteering. I think people want to volunteer. I, I genuinely think that. People want to help out. Parents want to help out. Young people want to help out. It's just we don't give them the right avenues to do it most of the time. Um, you know, I, I mentioned it before, often it's, you know, you, you want to volunteer, you know, you come and sit on our committee and you're stuck there for 30 years or whatever. Or, yeah, you know, or you're going to be the junior convener and you get lumped with absolutely everything and it becomes a burden for people. And that's why we get such high turnover. Um, or oppositely, when you get the clubs that do it really well and support them really well, they, they stick out so, so much. So Bite Size is really about making volunteering on people's terms rather than your club's. Um, which I think is really important. You know, don't force people into trying to do stuff that they're not really that interested in. And yes, that might be um, there's some challenges that come with that around managing more people and trying to get more people. But I think, again, what you get back is a greater, uh, I suppose, sharing of knowledge, sharing of time, that social connection that I talk about. And it's funny how some of those other things, like I talked about the connectors, start to happen from that. Because you actually might meet Ben who rocks along, who's happy to help with that and find out that he's awesome at doing podcasts and can do something really cool for your club and is really interested in that. So you start to unravel the little bits that can really help your club just build those little tentacles out there and become a far more connected club. Um, and I think it's important around bite size, was, and, I, and I mentioned it in my article, around trying to make it linked to the behaviours you want within your club as well and, and where you see your club going. Don't get me wrong, you, you need to have, um, you know, your coaches and your officials and, and those people, and they play a really important role as well. But but think about where you want your club to go and, and the direction that they want to um, that you see yourself and where, what your vision is for that and try and have your volunteering roles and the things you want to happen reflect that a little bit. And I suppose a loose example I, I used and used in that article was with Cricket Scotland was, 
we wanted our, our volunteering awards to to reflect the behaviours we wanted to see in clubs. So we went away from just recognising your volunteer of the year, your official of the year, which was still important. But we said we want clubs to be a little bit more enterprising and innovative and those nice buzzwords that we talked about at the start. So to encourage that, we went along with things like awards for most welcoming club, um, best income generation, because clubs were not making enough money, you know, and that's a hard existence on a club committee. Um, best community engagement, best user bite-sized volunteering that we talked about. So again, thinking about how you engage your volunteers and the behaviours you want to happen at your club, um, I think is important. And and if anything, I would say to clubs around bite sizes, you know, think about those um, welcomers. You know, again, it sounds like a bit of a fluffy term, but I tell you what, you get some great people who are front of house almost and great at talking to people and engaging. They are worth their weight in gold to your club because people, again, remember that experience and that feeling that, that Ben being a fantastic person who always came up and shook your hand and said good day and found out how you're doing and toilets are over there, the bar's up there, you know, any questions, you know, and just being really welcoming. I think it's a funny term, but it, it just creates, again, that culture around your club. So I suppose that's a, yeah, a long-winded explanation a little bit around the bite-sized volunteering, but it was what we found was it became really transformational for some clubs. You know, for years they just sat there with their one committee, the same people on it, and it just started to get new faces, new energy within the club and new opinions and views, which at the end of the day you don't always have to agree, but if you're having those conversations and chucking all the those ideas in the mix, I think you're going to come out better off in the longer term, and, and I think that's really important. I've on enough there, sorry. <laughs> no, it's it's fantastic. And Ian, it's, uh, so I keep on saying this music to my ears. I, I, I love what you're talking about here. Um, and, you know, we can't talk all afternoon. If people want to learn more about some of your theories and some of um, some of your information, what, what's the best way they can, um, they can f- feed off some of your material and possibly reach out to you? Yeah, yeah, look... Um, <clears throat> Follow me on LinkedIn. Um, I, I try and publish regular articles, blogs on there. Um, so if you um, give me a search on there, I'm sure I'll, I'll also follow you as well. Um, but also my website, sportforgoodconsulting.com, um, which you can have a look and get an overview. Um, but my contact details are on there as well. And, and look, I'm more than happy to, to share experiences with people. Get in touch with me. Honestly, you're more than welcome to give me a call, flick me an email, I can make time for you over Skype. I'm, I'm about sharing these ideas. I, I don't have the magic answer, but I like talking to people about this stuff and, and I can maybe help in that discussion to help with your club, um, and I'm happy to do that. So please go on my website and, and have a look and, and get in touch if you if you do want to explore any of that further. So that's sportforgoodconsulting.com. That's it. And on LinkedIn, it's Ian Sandbrook. Yep, that's correct. Fantastic. Now, before we let you get on with the rest of your weekend, Ian, we've got the uh, the quick fire round of questions. Now, these are carefully honed to uh, crack swimming parents, so uh, <laughs> it may be totally inappropriate for you, but uh, we'll see how we go. What's been the most useful piece of advice or equipment that you've had uh, during your sporting career to date? Piece of advice or equipment. 
that's a big one. That's a big one. Um, I would probably go for equipment, which was this is very boring actually. I'll be I'll be honest. Um, was as a young budding cricketer growing up. Um, times when bowling machines were coming out and getting a first bowling machine, which probably don't recommend it now, but I could just sit for hours and bat against someone. You know, previously it had to be my brothers and my dad, and they'd get sick to death of it. I was a passionate, and that was just what I wanted to do. So a piece of equipment that could ping a ball out to you and not complain and not throw their toys or want to bat themselves was, was probably a big deal for me. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Now, if you volunteered at a, uh, a state swimming event in New South Wales, the lucky door prize is a box of chocolates or bottle of wine. Are you wine or chocolates? Uh, wine. What sort? Uh, I love a good Pinot Noir being a Kiwi. Yep, Central Otago. That would suit me down to the ground. <laughs> if you had your time again, what, if anything, would you do differently? Uh, no. No, I don't think I would do anything differently, and that's probably sounds a bit cheesy, but that's that's the way it is. You do what you think's right at the time, so um, I wouldn't do it. There's stuff that I probably regret, but I don't think I'd do it differently. <laughs> that's a cop out answer, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I think it's the answer most people give, actually. Is it? Yeah, most people say they'd do the same again. It's quite yeah. nice. It's quite nice. <laughs> now you might not like this one. How long does it take you to swim fifty meters? Oh, jeez. Um, probably haven't swum 50 metres for a number of years, if I'm honest. Um, what was it? I'd, I'd probably say, I don't, I don't know, uh, maybe, what's a good time? <laughs> I don't know. Probably, uh, if you want to be probably, Michael Phelps, you could be about 20, 20 seconds, 22 uh, or something. So time's that by about five. I'd be happy if I got there under a minute. That's uh, not bad. That's not bad. Yeah. And what's been your most exciting sporting moment? Most exciting sporting moment? Um, I'll go back to one when I was um, just just a kid, young, young teenager, um, playing in a national schools final for cricket. Sorry for your swimming folk out there, I'm talking about cricket too much. But uh, coming down to the last over and we needed, uh, well, last ball, we needed um, five to win. Um, and that old cliche. And actually, in the rules of this competition, there was no fielding restriction, so everyone went on the boundary. And we were nine down, and our, it was a real boy's story. Our little skinny number 11 batsman charged a big bowler and hit him for six down the ground. So that was a pretty cool moment when you're a teenage kid to win your national finals. 